Well, this is the fifth of our six sessions for this equipping class. And actually next week, as I've been mentioning to you from the beginning, Nate Weidman will be taking us through First and Second Kings. And so next week I plan to just give him the whole time. I'm not going to try to preface or follow up uh, anything he says. I'll just give him the time. So I want to take a moment now because I'm sure at the end I'll probably be pressed against the clock and trying to get you guys out of here just to thank you for your attentiveness uh, while I've been teaching. Um, I know we've been moving very quickly through a lot of material, but you guys have just been so eager to learn and to, to understand and tracking right along despite all the material we've been moving through and how quickly we've been moving. So it's just an encouragement, really, to, to see your eagerness to learn, um, even just the questions afterward. So you even ask me questions. I say, I don't know, I need to check into that. And then you're following up with me. Hey, did you get the answer to that? Because I, I want to know. So it's just an encouragement to see that. Um, I think that's all I need to say. Oh, uh, so we're jumping into the middle of 2 Samuel, and for the sake of saving the trees, I just gave you uh, the pages from what we're going to be covering today. But if you want more of the notes on 2 Samuel, like from last week, I have some extra copies up here, so afterward you can just let me know, come up here, and I can give those to you. All right, let me open by asking for the Lord's blessing on our time. Lord, we do thank you for your word, and what a blessing it is to be with the body be looking at what you've revealed about yourself, about your people, about your purposes, and your plan for redeeming uh, your creation. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to get your word right. I pray that you'd help us to learn increasingly to live in uh, the biblical meta-narrative. That is the, the context, the worldview we need to live out of. And I pray, Lord, that our greater, growing familiarity with it would help us to do that very thing. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we are in the books of Samuel, or the book of Samuel. I had explained that, really, the, the division between First and Second Samuel is a bit of an artificial division. Um, it's, it's really one book, um, and so it's, we can just treat it that way. The outline I've given you here just runs straight through both books, doesn't really acknowledge that uh, division there. So we're going to be basically picking up in Second Samuel, because that's as far as we got, um, but let me quickly just review some things for us, really briefly. We won't spend much time reviewing here, but um, the purpose, the purpose, I said, of the books of Samuel, or the book of Samuel, to, to emphasize its unity, was this. I said, the author of Samuel writes for the purpose of explaining the remedy for their situation, that is, the situation of his readers, by looking back to the rise of the early monarchy and interpreting that era through a theological grid, specifically the theological grid laid down for us in the Mosaic Covenant, and particularly the book of Deuteronomy. That becomes the grid for interpreting that history. And to be more specific, his purposes, the author's purposes for his readers, seem to me to be able to be accounted for with, with under three headings. Number one, to encourage the readers to hope for a faithful Davidic king, that's what Israel needs, a faithful Davidic king. And so encouraging them to look forward to in hope for that. Number two, to explain what that required faithfulness in a king looks like through the characters in the story. David often, as we'll see today, not always, but often exemplifying that faithfulness. Saul pretty consistently not. And then three, to entreat all the people, all his readers, the average Israelite, to be faithful to, that, to the covenant by those same contrasting models, meaning the, the good models you see generally aren't entirely unique to a king. 
There's a lot that can be um, exemplified there and carried out by the average Israelite, right? We saw that one of the biggest things is just trusting the Lord and being faithful and obedient is what the Lord blesses. That's something that we could all put into practice and need to be reminded of. So those are, I think, the three purposes of the author in writing the book of Samuel. And then the structure you can see up here, we've already covered the first two, and we basically got most of the way through number three. So we're going to pick up there and then go through the rest. All right, so just to real quickly kind of, so we are jumping into the middle of that section. Beginning in 1 Samuel 16, Saul's kind of been done away with. He's still on the throne. He's still ruling, but in some sense, God's verdict has been clearly heard. The, the spirit, the God's spirit has moved from Saul to David. David in chapter 16 is anointed as the king of Israel. And then you have this, the rest of the book from 1 Samuel 16 through the end of 1 Samuel chapter 31, during which time you find Saul still on the throne. And in some sense, by David's own words, acknowledged to be, to some extent, a legitimate king. Saul's, I mean, David's not willing to remove him or to touch the Lord's anointed. Um, and yet, we all can see that David really is the one who is the true king. And during that whole period, we see really the, the character of David as the kind of king that Israel needs put on display, particularly kind of in contrast with Saul as a foil. Saul as sort of that, that opposite. This is what you don't want to be. And in time after time, scene after scene throughout those chapters... David's characters just seem to be put on display. We looked carefully at the, the well-known chapter, chapter 17, David and Goliath, and just saw the contrasting models there of David and Saul and the way that David really is the ideal king. Not because he's physically the ideal match for Goliath. Saul's the one who was a head, shoulder, head taller than everyone else in Israel, right? He was the best match. But because David trusted the Lord. David knew the Lord fights Israel's battles, and all that they need to do is trust him to do that, right? And that just keeps getting played out through the rest of the book. So we then come to the end of 1 Samuel, and <clears throat> we find that Saul and Jonathan die in battle. And then 2 Samuel opens uh, with, first of all, just David learning of Saul and Jonathan's death, mourning over them. And then in chapters 2 through 4, so this is finishing up part point 3, 2 Samuel chapters 2 through 4, we find that David is made king over Judah. Notice that, though. Not king over all 12 tribes, just king over Judah. At that point, that's the only tribe who wants him. So he rules from a city within Judah, uh, Hebron, Hebron, how do we say that? Hebron. Hebron, okay. Hebron. Good. He rules from Hebron. Uh, he does that for seven and a half years until finally um, he, he kind of gains, gains control, gains kingship over the whole nation, over all 12 tribes. And during this time, Abner, who was one of Saul's generals, made one of Saul's sons, Ishbosheth, uh, king over Israel. Well, that is 11 tribes, right? All but Judah, over whom David was reigning. But then eventually both Abner and Saul's son Ishbosheth are killed, and the tribes of Israel come to David and submit themselves to his reign. So just to summarize that section, then we'll move into point four. This covers the period between David being anointed as king over Israel 
in place of Saul and David actually becoming king. And throughout this section, David is contrasted with Saul and David's virtues are highlighted. Through the good model for what Israel's kings should be, the author, number one, encourages the reader to hope for what a faith, for a faithful Davidic king. So you see in David just a, an aspiring model, really. If that's what a faithful Davidic king should be, wow, I want that. We need that is what you're supposed to be thinking. Number two, presents a model in the life of David of what a faithful king will look like. And three, presents a model in the life of David of what, in many ways, the lives of all Israelites should look like, particularly in his trust of the Lord in the midst of all kinds of circumstances that seem to really be against him. So now, with that section that where we left off last week finished, let's move on to the next section, point number four, the blessings of David's faithful reign, 2 Samuel 5 through 10. And let me just say, as we start moving through this, we're going to really quickly look at chapters 5 and 6 and then camp out in chapter 7, which is where really the Davidic covenant is laid out. And in retrospect, I'm probably going to spend too much time there, more time than needed. I was telling Amy, really, I think this would be better like in a equipping class on something like salvation history, you know, seen through the progression of covenants because I spent so much time on the Davidic covenant but it really is very significant and so I think spending some extended time there thinking through that not just for the meaning of 2 Samuel but really for all of salvation history for setting up the significance of Christ I think it will be helpful to understand that a bit better but starting in 2 Samuel chapter 5 this section narrates what we might think of as the glory days of David's reign although David has been faithful for many years He's experienced a lot of opposition, particularly from within the nation and from Saul. But in 2 Samuel 5 to 10, we see the blooming of David's faithfulness in terms of blessings for David and the nation. So kind of what he's been sowing is now being reaped in terms of blessings for himself and for the nation. First, in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, David becomes king over Israel. Then in the latter part of uh, chapter 5, we see David's early victories. So, for example, in chapter 5, verses 6 through 9, he conquers Jerusalem. And then we find in uh, verses 10 through 16, really a summary of success. Like if you look at chapter 5, verse 10, David became greater and greater. Why? For the Lord God of hosts was with him. And then we find the latter part of chapter 5, verses 17 through 25, his victory in two battles over the Philistines. You'll remember that throughout this book, the Philistines have been this perpetual menace to the Israelites. And they, they never really gained the upper hand on them as they were promised the Lord would give them if they would simply be faithful to him in the covenant. It had nothing to do with the fact that the Philistines had iron weapons and Israel didn't. It had entirely to do with covenantal faithfulness to the Lord, obedience to him. And so... Here comes David now as king, leading the nation in obedience, and there's just quick, decisive victories over what had been a, an ongoing menace. So we're seeing the Lord's promises being fulfilled. Keep in mind that when it comes to the land promise, this is not just some kind of arbitrary thing related to real estate. This is about God's promises through the Abrahamic covenant, eventually, you know, first to, to give Israel that land, but really because then beyond that, he's eventually going to bless all nations. And then in chapter 6, we find David bringing the ark to Jerusalem. So the ark 
in the tabernacle more generally is, of course, where the Lord is kind of uniquely present. Of course, as the Lord says many times, there's no place that can really contain him, but he's uniquely present where the ark is, where the tabernacle is, eventually where the temple is. And therefore, David wants the ark to be where he is, where he's living, where he's, the place is created to be the capital of his kingdom. And since he's made Jerusalem his home, he brings the ark there. Now, under the judgeship of the wicked priest Eli, they had tried to use the ark like a, like a charm, you know, basically to manipulate the Lord. They took it into battle. It was taken by the Philistines. And then uh, it kind of, in some ways, it's almost as though the Lord departs from Israel. Remember, particularly, who was it? I can't remember which of his, uh, Eli's daughters-in-law it was. Um, but as she's giving birth, and she hears the news of the ark departing, she says, she names her son because the glory of the Lord has departed from Israel, she says. In a scene that in many ways is reminiscent of is Ezekiel 10, you know, where later in exile, the glory of the Lord leaves, seen going over the Mount of Olives, leaving Israel. And so, in some ways, it's almost as though the, the Lord has left Israel during this whole period. And yes, in, I think it's 1 Samuel chapter 6, the ark does return to, to, uh, to Israel. It kind of remains on the fringe, on the borderlands, and it's kind of neglected there for a variety of reasons, but it's largely neglected. So throughout Saul's king kingship, really the people don't seem to be too concerned about the ark. They just kind of let it remain over there and ignore it. But with David coming to power, he is now leading the people in covenantal obedience, a concern for the Lord to worship him. And so, of course, the ark becomes significant again. I mean, what a privilege it was for Israel to have the Lord God in their midst. And yet there was largely neglect of that throughout most of 1 Samuel and, and much of some of 2 Samuel. But then here in chapter 6, under David's kingship, as rest is being established in the land, we see him eager to bring that ark into kind of the heart of the nation, particularly now into what becomes the capital. So that's the significance of chapter 6, David bringing the ark to Jerusalem. And now we come to chapter 7. So if you don't have your Bibles open already, I'd encourage you to go and open your Bibles. I know we're often moving very quickly. It's hard to keep up, but we're going to slow down here in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So it'll be good for you to have your Bibles open. So here we come to the revelation that's often called the Davidic covenant. And the essence of this, these promises here given to David is that the kings promised previously to Abraham are promised here to be fulfilled specifically among David's descendants. And there are two ways we can approach this. Um, on the one hand, the Davidic covenant is first given here and also the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles chapter 17. But in other passages, we learn a whole lot more about the Davidic covenant, either because those passages have insightful reflection on this initial revelation of the covenant or because in progressive revelation, we're given more info about these promises. But there's a lot of other passages in the Old Testament that give a lot more info. So on the one hand, if we want a full treatment of the Davidic covenant, we'd want to consider all those passages, and that would indeed be a helpful thing to do. But because we're approaching this largely because we're coming to 2 Samuel, we're working through the former prophets, I'm going to generally limit ourselves to this passage 
and only every so often kind of give some references to other passages that might illuminate something, but generally focusing in here. So first, the structure. What is the structure of this? Whenever we come to a text, it's helpful to understand how it's been structured so we make sure we understand it correctly. First, in verses 1 through 3, David's, David plans to build a house for the Lord. And we're going to see a play on words here throughout this chapter on the word house. The word house can have uh, several meanings, but two of the ways used here, uh, one, we might call it a physical structure in which someone lives. Physical structure in which someone lives. If that's a king, we might call it a palace. If it's a god, we might call it a temple, but a physical structure in which that person generally lives. And then number two would be like a lineage of biological descendants. And if you're a king, that lineage of biological descendants you might think of as a dynasty, right? So those are two ways that this word is used sort of as a play on words as we move through. So pay attention to that as we move through the chapter. So in verses 1 through 3, David shares his plan to build a house for the Lord. He realizes he's brought the ark to Jerusalem. He's built himself a nice house, a nice palace. And then he looks over and here's this ark that's dwelling in basically a tent of curtains. And who knows if they repaired it and replaced some of those curtains. But at this point, about 400 years ago, that they had first created this thing and, and erected it. That's a long time. I mean, just imagine something, a tent of curtains erected in the U.S. in 1600. And then, you know, what would that look like these days? Now, granted, there may have been some repair that happened to it, but nonetheless, the point is this doesn't seem like it was all that impressive of a thing. Um, certainly not, in David's estimation, understandably, appropriate for the Lord compared to the, the temple or the palace that David is living in. So David says, it seems appropriate for me to build this house for the Lord. And basically, Nathan goes ahead and affirms that. Without thinking, without consulting the Lord, yes, that sounds like a good thing to do. But then we find that the Lord, beginning in verse 4, uh, reveals himself to David through Nathan. And we can divide his revelation basically into two parts. Um, First, there is, uh, in verses 4 through 7, I think in your handout there, you should have this outline to help you follow along. First, we have the Lord's rejection of a house for himself, that is, a temple. And the Lord rejects David's plan to build a temple. There's no explanation why in this passage. The Lord only states essentially that he doesn't need a house of cedar, and he's quite content without one. This either means, the Lord's saying, since I don't need one, um, I will never have one, or since I don't need one, I will decide on my own terms when I should, when one should be built for me. And the context indicates it's clearly the latter. The Lord's eventually going to allow David's son to build a temple for him. The point is, I don't need one, and therefore I'm going to decide when one's built, and this is not the time for it. Then, in the second half of this section, verses 8 through 17, the Lord makes promises to David. Having rejected David's offer of a temple, the Lord now makes promises to David. And these promises are divided into two parts. First, those that will be fulfilled during David's lifetime and those that will be fulfilled after David's death. And we can see the break in two indicators. First, uh, the statement, the Lord also declares to you, which we find, uh, let's see, verse 8 Oh, sorry, no, 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 the middle of verse 11. The middle of verse 11, really almost two-thirds of the way through, the Lord also declares to you, which is wholly unnecessary because what precedes and what follows is what the Lord's declaring to him. So why would that be repeated again? It's 
being inserted there really for, you might think of it as chunking the text, breaking it up into pieces so we can see how it's structured. And then we also see that temporal note at the beginning of verse 12, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, indicating that that latter half is looking forward to something that's going to go beyond David's life, whereas what precedes is something that's going to be fulfilled during David's lifetime. So first, those promises that will be fulfilled in David's lifetime, which we see in verses 8 through the first half of verse 11. Uh, let me just read for you first uh, 8 through the first part of 9. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. So there we see really kind of a review of the Lord's past kindnesses to David. Then we see the promises that are given to him in light of those past kindnesses are building on those past kindnesses beginning in that halfway point between in verse 9 picking up where I left off and I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and then the third one and I will give you rest from all your enemies. So there's a switch in verbal tenses here that indicate we're moving from a review of what the Lord had done for David in the past to what he's promising he'll do during David's lifetime in the future from this point forward. And we see, first of all, he promises him a great name. Then he promises that Israel will be settled peacefully in the land. And then thirdly, that the Lord will give to David specifically rest from all his enemies. And these promises, with their connections back to the Abrahamic covenant, remind us that a faithful king was a means to lead the people to the inheritance of those promises. And now we kind of come to what's really the, the heart of the Abrahamic covenant, and that is verses, kind of the latter half of verse 11 through verse 16. A promise to make a house for David. So this promise is summarized at the end of verse 11. You can see there, the Lord also declares to you that, and then here's the summary, the Lord will make a house for you. And now here, obviously, he's playing on these, this word because David said, I want to build a house for the Lord. And now the Lord's already rejected that. And he now says, but I'm going to build a house for you. He doesn't mean the same thing. Not a temple for uh, David, not a palace for David. But here, as we're going to see in, in the way it's elaborated in verses 12 through 16, this refers to a dynasty, a, a lineage of kings. So first in verse 12, let me just go and read for us verses um, 12 through 16. This is where in direct speech we now hear kind of the details of this promise, elaborating the house that will be built for him. Verse 12, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant or your seed after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom or his reign. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Then 
Verse 17 just reports that Nathan reported this faithfully in accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. So, after David's death is when these things are going to come about, and we see first in verse 12 that the Lord's going to raise up a seed for David after him. That is, that the Lord's going to cause this descendant of David's to rule as king over Israel in David's place. And then we see this clarification. This isn't just any descendant. This will specifically be a biological descendant of David. And that's clarified there with that statement, who will come forth from you? On the one hand, that maybe is a helpful clarification. On the other hand, this little phrase echoes similar statements made to Abraham. You remember chapter 15 of Abraham. Sorry, of Genesis. Not of Abraham. That's not a book in the Bible. In chapter 15, the Lord says, basically he's going to bless Abraham, and Abraham says, well, like, who's my descendant? Who's my heir? Eleazar, he, he could be it. And the Lord says, no, no, no. It's going to be one who comes forth from your very loins, from your very body. He will be your descendant. And the same language is used here. So we're picking up sort of on the seed promises related to, given to Abraham, now sort of picked up for David. And then in chapter 17, verse 6, of Genesis, we find when the, the first time that the promise is given to David, sorry, to Abraham of uh, kings to come forth from him, this very basic line is used, and kings will go out from you, is essentially what Genesis 17, 6 says at this point. And so that latter one's particularly significant because it's connecting this promise to David directly back to the promise for kings made to Abraham. We'll come back to that in a moment. And then he finishes verse 12 by saying, and I will establish his kingdom or his reign. Then moving on to verse 13. Begins, he will build a house for my name. So indeed, the Lord does want a temple, but it's not going to be David. It's going to be his descendant who will build that. And then the second half of verse 13, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So essentially the promises from the end of verse 12 are repeated. Now look at 14 and 15. Three important things to notice here. First, this royal Davidic seed will be considered a divine son, a son of God. And being a son of God is a category that indicates a likeness, both in character and in function to the God. And this was something very common in the ancient Near East for kings to claim to be a son of the God. That wasn't necessarily a claim to be divine themselves but to be one who can faithfully represent the will of the god to the people on earth that's what that category would indicate so thus by seeing that this these descendants of david will be considered sons basically the lord saying i'm sort of entrusting them to be my vice regents to represent me on earth it's also uh, next significant to note that Israel was previously said to be God's son in Exodus chapter 4. And sort of, uh, that was sort of filled out what that means in chapter 19 of Exodus, that they will be kings and priests to me. So in some sense, Israel is already within all the nations a representative for the Lord, right? But now it seems that this individual within Israel, the Davidic king, will be kind of uniquely the representative to all the nations, and even the representative for the Lord to Israel. 
Just as Israel was to mediate blessings to the nations, the Davidic king will mediate blessings to Israel and to the nations. So that's the first important thing to note here, that the Lord promises that this son will be a, uh, a, a son, this Davidic son, king, will be a son to God. Next, we see that the Lord will discipline for disobedience. This is something of what we might call like a condition. Sometimes people try to categorize the covenants in Scripture according to conditional or unconditional. Um, and I, I know what people mean by that. We've talked about this before with the Abrahamic covenant because there are some promises like the Abrahamic, like the Davidic, where the Lord's clearly going to make sure they're fulfilled. It's going to be fulfilled. But it's not equally likely to be fulfilled in every circumstance. We're going to see here the Davidic covenant will be fulfilled ultimately through a faithful son, right? So the Lord's never going to give up on that. But in some sense, there are conditions put upon when it will be fulfilled. And we sort of see that here. And we'll come back to this a little bit later. And then thirdly, we see that the Lord will never finally remove this kindness. You see at the end of verse or verse 15, but my loving kindness shall not depart from him. That is the Davidic king, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. So think about this. Saul is unfaithful to the Lord. What happens? The Lord says the kingdom of Israel is removed from you. Your right to reign over them is taken away and it's going to be given to another. The text is one who's better than you. A different, a different person will take that. Well, that seems to suggest that this is the way the Lord operates, that if any of David's sons are unfaithful to the Lord, this dynasty could be cut off. See that? That pattern would suggest that's a very viable possibility. And here in verses 14 and 15, we're told that won't happen. The Lord won't work kind of equally effectively in bringing about the Abrahamic promises. He won't do that equally through any son. The more faithful the son the more likely he's going to work through them to bring about the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promises. He's going to discipline those who are unfaithful, but he's never going to basically say at some point this dynasty is cut off. He will always stick with the plan that the true kings of Israel will come from David's line. Does that make sense? Okay. And then verse 16 basically repeats the essence of the promise. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And it's said to be forever, right? The phrase used here doesn't always mean literally forever and ever, um, but because of contextual factors and also other passages in the Old Testament, it seems that this one really is meant that way. Elsewhere, basically it said the promises to David will last kind of as long as the, the moon and the stars do. All right. Then, in the rest of the chapter, 18 to 29... We basically find that David prays a responsive prayer to the Lord in gratitude for this promise he's made to him. And there's really only um, one piece of this I want to come back to in verse 19, but we'll come back to that. So, having looked at the details, let's kind of pull up and let's summarize the essence of this promise. Although there are these three shorter-term promises given in verses 9, 10, and 11, namely that the Lord will make a great name for David, that the Lord will cause Israel to rest peacefully in the land, and that the Lord will give David a rest from his enemies. Despite those three promises, which are there, and don't want, we don't want to undermine those or, or ignore those, the emphasis and the focus seems to fall on the promises of a house for David. And essentially, that promise simply conveys that the promises for kingship previously given 
will come through David's line. That might sound a little simplistic. A, a, lot, a lot being said about this Davidic covenant. How, how does it bear so much significance if really all it's saying is those kings back there promised they're going to come through David's line? You didn't previously know through which family they're going to come? You knew Judah, but you know any more than that? Well, now I'm going to tell you it's me, David. Does it seem all that significant? Well, most of the significance of this comes from the significance of those previous promises related to kings. In other words, this, this promise is sort of like a funnel, right? It's, it's funneling these promises specifically into David's line, and the significance isn't primarily in the funnel, but in those promises that are being channeled there. So, let's take a moment and let's consider what in previous revelation was said about kingship in terms of God's purposes to redeem the world that gives this promise its significance. So first, I'm going to, I think I've got many of these, some of these passages printed out there for you. And then if I don't have them printed, it's probably because I'm just going to be summarizing them for you. So you're welcome to try to turn there, but I've got to move pretty quickly through some of these passages. First, kings generally in the Abrahamic covenant. So we find in Genesis 17, 6, the first time that kings are promised to Abraham. You can see it there. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, the Lord says to Abraham, and I will make nations of you. And here it is. Kings will come forth from you. And then essentially the same things repeated to Sarah in verse 16 of chapter 17. Now notice that this promise of kings does not replace the promise of a multitude of descendants. It's added alongside it. So there's this promise of a multitude of descendants to Abraham, and then a promise of sort of within that multitude of descendants, this unique line of people who are identified as kings. So we have in the Abrahamic covenant at least two types of seed promises. One, a promise for a multitude, and number two, a promise for specific descendants who will have a unique role to play as kings. Next, Genesis 35, 11, the Lord appears to Jacob and he explicitly passes those promises given to Abraham onto Jacob. We see there, I am God Almighty, he says to Jacob, be fruitful and multiply, a, king, uh, sorry, a nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come forth from you. Again, the promise for kings is clear in the Abrahamic promises and it exists alongside that more general seed promise for a multitude of descendants. So I want you to see that both of those are there. One doesn't cancel out the other. Now, let's go back and consider these promises, not just even for a line of, of kings, but for a unique, particular, individual descendant. So first, go all the way back, in your mind at least, to Genesis 3.15, and that's where we saw that word of hope among the punishments for Adam and Eve's disobedience. We were told that a particular descendant would crush the head of the serpent, conveying that he would deal with evil, with everything that opposes God's purposes in creation, so that God's purposes might be restored and completed. So there's this unique individual descendant who's promised there to do that work. So there we already have, in the midst of these different kind of promises for descendants to come and through whom God's going to be working. We have this nation, a multitude of descendants, this great nation under Abraham. We have this promise of a line of kings that we have, we see in 315, this promise of a particular individual. Now, this text, 315, doesn't specifically describe the individual as being royal or being a king. 
But the genealogies of Genesis 5 and 11 trace that promise directly to Abraham, to whom it's promised that uh, kings will come. So it seems like it lines up, but there's something that makes us, I think, even a little bit more certain, and that's in Genesis chapter 22. So remember Genesis chapter 22, you probably remember because that is where Abraham is asked to sacrifice his son Isaac. He is willing to do that, and the Lord comes to him and appears to him through the angel of the Lord afterwards and basically blesses him and repeats some of the promise to him. And here he says, he begins by repeating the promise for a multitude of descendants. This is in the first part of verse 17 of chapter 22. I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. There we have again, the promise for a multitude of descendants. But then, in the original language, in the middle of verse 17, the text uses a conjunction that specifically indicates a a disjunction, a disconnect, sort of a bit of a switch in kind of what's going to follow. And we see that specifically he's going to be switching from a reference to a multitude of seed to an individual seed. And we see that by the pronouns that are used after this, that he's now referring to an individual And so in the latter half of verse 17, what we find is, and your seed, an individual seed, shall possess the gate of his enemies. So among the multitude of descendants, there's promised to be a particular one who will conquer enemies. And this already seems likely to be a royal task. And that is not surprising since we've already seen the promise to Abraham for kings, right? There's going to be kings coming from Abraham. And there's a particular one who's going to do something that's usually assigned to the task of kings, and then also this promise of a singular descendant likely picks up the promise of Genesis 3.15. So let me review those concentric circles in terms of what we're dealing with here. We have all the nations, right? All humanity. Then within that, we have Israel. And the Lord has promised to make Abraham into a great nation whom he will bless and through whom he will bless the nations. So within all humanity, we have this great nation promised to Abraham. Then within that, we have this promise of kings in Abraham's line. Among Abraham's descendants, there will be kings, a unique group with a unique role. And then we have this promise, this expectation for a unique king. Among those kings promised to Abraham, there will be an individual descendant who will have a unique role. And within the context of the promises to Abraham, it seems that his conquering of cities and taking possession of them likely relates to the land promise, meaning that individual king Descendant will have a critical role to play in bringing about the fulfillment of the land promise. But don't forget that the purpose of the blessings for Abraham and his descendants was ultimately that those blessings would be turned outward to all nations. Remember the land promise we said is specifically kind of like a new garden. The Lord saying, you know, you were expelled from here. The Lord had originally created this place on the whole earth, this garden where he uniquely dwelled, where he put his people, where he worked with them and where they dwelt in his relational presence, and from which they were going to kind of extend his blessings to the whole earth. And so the land promised to Abraham sort of becomes that again. And this significance that this king would have, this individual king within Israel related to the land promise, isn't surprising in light of the promise of Genesis 3.15, right? That the one who would finish God's purposes, his redemptive restoration purposes, would be this individual descendant. Now... Um, oh yes and this is exactly what in Genesis 22 is promised next verse 18 says in your seed continuing that reference to a singular seed in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed just a little side note we aren't talking about Galatians here but a little side note 
there's this interesting passage in Galatians 3 where, where Paul makes this grammatical argument that the Lord doesn't say the promises about seeds, plural, but seed, singular. And people have scratched their head because generally the, the Hebrew words, what we may call a collective uh, singular, it's, it's singular in form and it's not really clear usually whether it refers to one or many. Think of like fish. Maybe not a good example because the King James uses fishes, doesn't it? So we do have a plural for fish, but generally we say a singular fish. And yet you could look to other grammatical clues in the syntax that would help you know, right? If I say, look at this fish that I caught, is the fish singular or plural? If I say, look at these fish that I caught, is it singular or plural? Plural. It's plural, right? So there's other clues. And the same thing is true in Hebrew. (laughs) There are other clues like pronouns. And in Hebrew, there are these pronouns that attach to other words, pronominal suffixes, that will usually indicate this. So, um, yes, so people often have different ways of explaining Paul's argumentation in Galatians 3, but it seems like this might be the passage he has in view here, because grammatically we can actually make the argument that it is singular. So it seems this might be what Paul has in view in explaining kind of that dynamic of this multitude of seed and the singular seed. Paul seemed to see that. All right, next, continuing on. Genesis 49, that's where we have Isaac's, kind of blessing prophecy to his 12 sons. And there we find out specifically that there will be kings in which of his sons' line? Judah's, right? So we know specifically it's going to be channeled through Judah. Remember, it's reviewing here the significance of kingship promises to the storyline of the Old Testament. Then, in Numbers 24, the fourth of those oracles that come from Balaam, We hear a prophecy about a singular future ruler in Israel who would advance the fulfillment of the Lord's promises to Abraham by conquering Israel's enemies. And that fits in this trajectory quite well. Everything we've seen so far makes good sense in light of that. Now, continuing our kind of quick review of these Old Testament passages, you remember Deuteronomy 17, right? Deuteronomy 17, this law for the kings, specifically told us, one of the major roles of the king. We're told a number of things he's not to do, but there's one thing the king's supposed to do. To copy the law and to obey it. That's it. And it seems like maybe implication from some other passages, he's supposed to lead the nation in obeying that as well. And that makes good sense from everything we've seen so far in Joshua, Judges, 1 Samuel, right? That the fulfillment of those promises totally rides on the faithfulness of the nation to the Lord. But anyways, my point here is that Deuteronomy 17 refers to a future king in Israel, or kings, it's not specifically an individual one, and the primary thing that king is to do is to know God's revelation, to obey it, and to lead Israel in obedience. Then we saw in Judges, remember that last section in Judges, that begins and ends with that statement that uh, everyone did what was right in his own eyes, there was no king in Israel. It seems like there's a, a connection or relationship there of causation. Because there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So it seems that, again, the king is to have some kind of role of leading the people in faithfulness and obedience to the Lord. So in terms of kind of that, all that history about kings, I think this is how we can summarize it. This promise to David that the promise that the kings will come through his line has significance because kings are to have a unique role among the wider nation by leading them to obedience to the Lord and thereby inheriting the promises. So we've seen Israel is struggling to inherit the promises to this point, aren't they? Why? Because of disobedience. 
So we see a king arising now. The king is supposed to lead them to obedience so that they might inherit the promises given to Abraham. But let's not forget that not only was there the promise of kings in the plural, but there was also the promise of a singular king who is included in this promise to David. So this places David's line at the center of God's redemptive plan. The core of God's redemptive plan expressed in the Abrahamic covenant is being funneled through David's line, not only for Israel, but for all of humanity. That's pretty significant. The hope of all of the world for any kind of redemption, we said was rooted in the promises to Abraham, and now we're seeing that's actually being funneled through David's line. Pretty significant. Therefore, even though summarizing the Davidic covenant as indicating that the previous promises related to kingship would come through David's line might not sound very significant, it is indeed very significant because what's being funneled into David's line is significant. Now, we've talked a bit about how within these kings, there's not only going to be kind of blessing for the nation, but specifically for all nations, right? Look at verse 19. I said come back to this very briefly. We're still in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 19. Now, you have to track with me. This is a very difficult passage that's variously interpreted. Now, we don't have time to go into that. So I'm going to kind of lay it out there. We're going to give you the significance and move on. We'll have to be content with that for now. You can come up to me and ask me questions afterward. In David's prayer of gratitude, in response to the Lord's promise, we find at the end of verse 19 that David makes this statement. He says, and this is how I would translate it, this is the plan related to humanity. I have that there, I think, on your handout. This is the plan related to humanity, with the this referring back to all the promises. So David's essentially saying, what we seem to be the significance of this kings already, that this isn't just relevant to Israel. This is going to relate basically to God's plan, God's instruction for all of humanity. The ESV comes pretty close to this with its, this is instruction for mankind. All right, so who's going to fulfill this? Will this be fulfilled by Solomon? Some kind of ultimate Davidic king, a messiah? It's a good question. How we answer that is pretty important to how we understand this to be fulfilled. Now, we need to think in more generic terms than simply Solomon or some ultimate messiah. It is possible for some of the sons to fulfill some aspects of the promises and yet not fully and finally fulfill all that's promised. And that doesn't mean that the one who only fulfills some of it doesn't actually fulfill all of it. They've actually, in some sense, fulfilled some of it. Solomon. Solomon does indeed fulfill some of what's promised here. He does build the temple. And he actually says that that was done in fulfillment of the promise made to David. So he's claiming that was a fulfillment through him. But because of unfaithfulness to the terms of the covenant, disobedience... Solomon does not finally and fully fulfill all that's promised here. And each time that a Davidic king comes to the throne, begins his reign, and then basically defaults on his faithfulness, he proves that he's not going to be faithful to the terms of the covenant, we learn he can't be the one who's going to finally and fully fulfill it. However much like David and Solomon, they might in part fulfill some of those that purpose. And each time that happens... Israel is looking forward yet for another king, one who will be faithful. Their hope is just continually pointed forward, and each time a new king arises, he might be the one. 
But each time he shows that he's not going to be faithful to the covenant, they look yet further forward in hope for that king who will eventually come and be faithful and therefore be able to fulfill all that's promised. And the king who will ultimately fulfill these promises is one whom I would call the ultimate Davidic king. I think that's a helpful way to refer to it. The ultimate Davidic king. This is the one who often the Bible's referred to as the Messiah, right? Messiah is this interesting term because it's, in some ways, it's very, it could have multiple meanings. It just means an anointed one. And in Israel, kings were probably the most prominent among the ones who were anointed. But so were priests and even sometimes prophets were anointed. So it's totally appropriate to say that David is the Lord's Messiah, right? He's his anointed. That's true. It's only when we start specializing that term that we get uneasy with that. Solomon was God's anointed. Josiah was God's anointed. Right? They were anointed by God to fulfill a task on his behalf. But as time goes on, particularly as we get into the exile and beyond the exile, and as there's been a long time without a faithful king, they begin to think of like the Messiah, right? The one, that ultimate Davidic king who will come, who will be faithful, who will fulfill all of this. And so by the time you get to some of the later prophets and particularly into the Gospels, Messiah becomes sort of a technical term for this ultimate Davidic king, the one who will be faithful and fulfill all of that. Does that make sense? All right. And uh, let's see here. Okay, that is why the messianic expectations, when you think about the Messiah and messianic expectations, they are so closely associated with the Davidic covenant. Because what does Messiah actually mean? It basically means he's a Davidic king. He's an anointed Davidic king. That's essentially what that whole messianic expectation about. It's about this ultimate Davidic king. And now think about the language you often find, even in the New Testament, for the Messiah. And how much of it comes directly from this passage and these expectations. Messiah or Christ. Christ is just the, the Greek version. It means the anointed one. It's the Greek version, whereas Messiah comes from the Hebrew. So both Messiah and Christ are just two different ways of saying the same thing, anointed one. Those are used regularly, right? And those both go back to this promise that basically to say someone is the Messiah or the Christ is to say he is that ultimate Davidic king. How about the references to being a David? We don't actually find anyone just called David in the Gospels. We don't find that term used, but throughout the Old Testament, we find these references to, you know, David. I'm going to send David long after David's gone. A new David, we sometimes call them. The rabbis called him another David. Um, but the idea was there's going to be another David like David. But why would they call him that? Because it's associated with these promises, right? How about son of David? Again, entirely associated with these promises. How about son of God? Associated, at least in many of the Gospels, John might go a bit beyond that, but especially in the Synoptic Gospels, associated with this promise. It's, in some ways, son of God is a term that's synonymous with son of David or um, Messiah. That's why you often see them side by side, Right? The, the Christ, the son of the blessed one, side by side in apposition, because they basically have the same meaning. We see references in the, like in Isaiah, to a shoot from the stump of Jesse when referring to the Messiah, right? Jesse was David's father. It's going to be another David. How about the king of Israel in the Gospels? Jesus is taunted on the cross being the king of Israel. That's a messianic label. Why? Because it's rooted in this prophecy. Or in the Gospels, we regularly find this statement Jesus says he's preaching that the kingdom of God is at hand, right? That's rooted in this expectation as well. The idea is the reign of God, 
mediated through his Davidic king, who is his vice-regent, doing so for the purpose of fulfilling the promises of the Abrahamic covenant, has arrived in the person of Jesus. That's what he's saying. The kingdom of God is at hand. That Davidic king who's going to mediate God's reign on earth has come. He's here in my coming. Again, all of these things that Jesus is saying is rooted in this. Not everything he says, but many of these things I've outlined for you is rooted in this promise here. So I took some time to look on ahead just so you can see the significance of this and hopefully make some connections there. So, summarizing all that. With the Lord's purpose to restore and complete his plan at creation, he has promised that kings will play a significant and special role in that, especially a particular king who will come from the tribe of Judah. And the Davidic covenant builds on these details, indicating that these kings and that ultimate singular king will come in David's line. And that's significant because these kings are to lead Israel in fulfilling its role, both before the Lord and before all the nations, and thereby play a central role as the Lord's agent in his redemptive plan. Now, we're out of time. Let me summarize the, the rest of this with just those simple summary paragraphs I've been giving you. When we come then to the rest of this section, we stopped at verse uh, chapter 7, but chapters 8 through 10, I titled that, I think I have that there in your notes, David's faithful rule. Essentially, we just see that David is being faithful and that he's being blessed tremendously for that. Like it's summarized in 8, 14, and 15. The Lord helped David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel and David administered justice and righteousness for all the people. So summarizing this first section, or ch uh, chapters 5 through 10, by narrating some of the blessings of David's faithful reign, and especially by narrating the Lord's promise to bring about his promises through a faithful Davidic king, the author encourages the reader to hope for a future faithful Davidic king. Then, and really much of the rest of the book, chapter 5 there, 11 through 20, we have first... David sinned with Bathsheba and against Uriah recounted. Then in chapter 12, we find Nathan coming and basically saying, so in the flow of all of this, David's sin here is basically now a big shift, a big turning point. He's broken a number of the commandments. I documented here that he breaks the 10th commandment by coveting a neighbor's wife. He breaks the 7th commandment by adultery. He breaks the 8th commandment by stealing this man's wife. He breaks the 6th commandment by murder. And that's not just me reading into it. Nathan uses all of those langu that language, stealing, murder. He doesn't say like you, uh, that someone else murdered him. He actually says that you killed them by someone else's sword. So big shift. Then chapter 12, Nathan comes and confronts him and basically says, there's going to be just difficulty in your house because of this. And suddenly the rest of that book, really from 13 through 20, not totally the rest, there's still the appendix, but that whole section is a sad recounting of how that punishment is carried out, not only kind of as a curse on David, as, as a painful reality punishment for David, but for the whole nation. And one person I read actually noted that that section begins with, you know, Amnon, one of David's sons, raping Tamar, one of his daughters, and then it ends with basically civil war. And he says that's exactly what we see at the end of Judges. We see rape and civil war. Like in some ways we're back to the same thing. The king himself, per se, is not the solution. A faithful king who leads the nation in obedience is what is needed. So summarizing that section, 
This section teaches that while there are lessons to be learned by looking back to this period in Israel's history, what Israel needs is a new and greater David who will be entirely faithful, not merely some sort of you know, nostalgic look back. Oh, if only we were back in the days of David. No, David wasn't the answer. That king who is the answer is yet to come. Hope in him. And then, finally, in this appendix, we basically have some, a collection of stories that are put together in a neat arrangement that kind of mirrors it. We often call this a chiasm. And it seems to just highlight a number of themes from the book. So I'm not going to go through those now, but just to summarize that, this final section of the book recaps some of the major themes of the book, but especially encourages the reader to look forward in hope for a faithful Davidic king through whom the Lord will fulfill his promises. So the books of Samuel, basically trying to create that hope for a future Davidic king who will fulfill the promises, telling us what that faithfulness looks like through the characters, and even for the everyday reader who's not going to be one of those kings, even an example of what it looks like to be faithful to the Lord, models for us. And David becomes this incredible pattern for Jesus, right? Particularly the pattern of not simply coming in triumph, but think about it. David was first unimpressive, overlooked, neglected, and then only later was he sort of risen to prominence and vindicated, right? And so that pattern is used again and again for Jesus. When Jesus' contemporaries say he can't be the Messiah because look how unimpressive he is, he's basically presented against a Davidic mold, showing that, no, actually, this is what we would expect of a Davidic king. And Jesus, like David, is going to be vindicated, right? He's going to come back in his second coming in vindication. In his first coming, he was faithful to, to do what the Lord had given him despite the opposition, despite not really seeming victorious, but yet he was victorious, right? John, the Gospel of John makes this point over and over and over again. He triumphed um, through his death and resurrection. And in our following in Christ, we follow him in that same era not in the era of his triumph and his glorification, but in that era of being despised and rejected. And so like him, we entrust ourselves to the Lord while we pursue his mission, which he's passed on to us. And he's specifically in the midst of suffering and rejection that will accomplish that mission. And like Christ, we will follow him too in a future time, in his second coming, when there will be vindication, when there will be exaltation, Right? But that's not the era we're in, and it's helpful to remember that. That's the pattern Christ has set for us, and we're following him in the era of rejection. All right. We're out of time, so I'm not going to ask for any questions now, but you're welcome to come up to me and talk to me afterward. Let me close in prayer. Lord, we love you, and I thank you for your word. I thank you for these dear brothers and sisters, for their attention, for their eagerness to learn. Um, I pray, Lord, that we would all be helped to think more rightly about you and your purposes uh, as we rightly understand your word. I pray that you would use this just as a foundation stone and in, in, in our understanding that we can keep building on a better understanding of who you are and all that you've revealed. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.